Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Okay, good morning. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I know that most of you know who I am, but we are being podcast, so for the purposes of the recording, uh, Dave then knows which, which edit to do. Uh, welcome to this event. I'm incredibly grateful to Somerset House Trust and Gwyn Miles for hosting this this morning. Um, those of you who don't know this place as well should come here more often. It is the most extraordinary space. And we're very pleased to be hosting this particular event here. Uh, I'm also very happy that this event is in association with Channel 4. EI runs its uh, events a bit like a club. And increasingly, we're forming partnerships with interesting organizations that also want to share what they're doing with our members. So I'm pleased that Channel 4 is doing this event with us. Uh, what do we like to do with events? Well, we like to take topics of interest, of resonance, of the moment, and discuss them, not just with an illustrious panel, but with an illustrious audience. And I think it's fair to say you have all been hand-picked for your interest and relevance to arts and culture. And I know that we're going to hear from you as much as from the panel. Um, now, I'm going to hand over in very short order to Robin White, the chairman of the uh, panel, although really he's a sort of... Um, chief scout on the panel rather than an impartial chair because he's, he's a colourful character literally and culturally uh, and no less substantial in the world of culture for it but he is well known for his involvement in arts policy and in conservative politics so he's promised me that he's going to be ruthlessly impartial while saying his bit at the outset. He is one of advertising's greatest figures, but he's also brought the world of creativity into the voluntary sector in a major way. He was chairman of arts and business for some years, so he is the perfect person to take you forward into the sunny uplands of this morning's discussion. Thank you, Robin. Well, thank you very much. Thank you all for, for, for coming. And we've got, as you can see, a hugely distinguished panel uh, to look at the whole question of the conservative world, but I'm sure which we, we mean, uh, you know, what might happen after the next general election, which may, well may well be a Conservative government, with Ed Vasey, Jude Kelly, Echo Eshon, Tessa Ross and Dan Sujik. And I'll introduce each of them briefly in turn before they have their five minutes of fame, ruthlessly, ruthlessly managed. I would like first of all just to congratulate all of you because um, as you, some of you may know, like some of you were there, there's another, there's a gathering on exactly the same theme, a two-day conference. Uh, the star of course was Ed Vasey as well as is a, a major star of this ferment and all of you who chose to come to this gathering rather than that one have all saved yourself £650. So, <laughs> so give yourself, it's a cost-effective moment. Um, I'm going to ask Ed to open the batting in, in, in just a second but first I just want to put forward one or two themes we might probe uh, this morning. Um, I think it, it's worth recognising, I think, um, albeit my total impartiality on the subject, that all, for all of Tony Blair's valedictory exposition, that his um, regime was not an unmixed blessing for the arts. Um, certainly those of us who remember that, that, that uh, 
savaging the thespians gave to the Arts Council when some uh, cuts, savage cuts were announced, we'll remember that. It's also worth remembering, as has been pointed out many times, that the reduction in um, lottery funds going into the arts just about balances the amount of extra grant aid funding going into the arts, so financially they may not have been much of an advantage. Uh, it's also worth saying that not everything that Labour did was bad for the arts. I think the, 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 uh, the free museum the, the admissions was a wonderful initiative, the focusing on the cultural economy, the creative economy, uh, that was, I think, a really important initiative. But I do think the practice of treat, treating the arts as social policy rather than a cultural expression uh, led to a great many absurdities. One of my favourite and perhaps the most incongruous was when the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge approached the, the, the Heritage Lottery Fund for help in buying a 14th century prayer book. And the first question that was asked was not, is it good art? But I quote, how is this work relevant to the owner of your local Chinese takeaway? And I think rebalancing the art so the intrinsic and the instrumental once more come into balance is a, a really important thing which I hope we'll, uh, the next Conservative government will, 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 will introduce. Of course, high on Ed and, and Jeremy Hunt's agenda will what, will what to do with the Arts Council. And those of you who've read Mark Sidwell's report and indeed read uh, John Tuzer's Conservative Task Force might have their own view on this subject. I think, um, sort of my standpoint, Mark Sidwell's report gave a chapter and verse to one particular observation I'll quote from Rupert Christensen, uh, who said, I quote, What we have currently is the worst of all possible worlds. The Arts Council has been reduced to the status of a government agency largely staffed by robotic bureaucrats who only fill in forms and meet targets. The Arts Minister, meanwhile, plays puppet master, invisibly pulling the strings so the arts will fulfil their role in the grand strategy of social inclusion without really understanding how the marionettes dance. End of quote. And, of course, we can challenge and debate that today. But I think it, just, it is worth remembering that uh, John Maynard Keynes, who established the Art Council, I don't know what you think of it today. It's actually 80 times bigger in real terms than the organisation he established. Bloated or not, well, we can debate that later. Um, and my panellists may have different viewpoints. Indeed, you have different viewpoints. It's meant to be a debate. Other hot potatoes? Well, well for example, should uh, sports be booted out of the DCMS, as happens in many other uh, parts of the world? Um, should arts and business, uh, I declare an interest obviously, uh, get back um, its pairing scheme which helped get £680 million going into the arts in 2008 to help um, you know, the, the sponsorship from the, public, from the private sector, given the public sector undoubtedly is going to be reduced as we clear up Gordon Brown's Orgean stables. Uh, we've also got experts on this panel who can talk about broadcasting, culture more widely, the BBC. We've heard from Jeremy Hunt that he may scrap the BBC Trust, might even tear up the Royal Charter, might even freeze the licence fee. And clearly, you know, there's lots of great things the BBC does. Perhaps sometimes it throws its weight around a little bit heavily, such as not allowing, or maybe it was the BBC Trust, um, onto its iPlayer platform, either Channel 4, our great sponsors today, or indeed ITV. And I'm sure there's a whole range of other things which we can embrace. And, and maybe even the great idea of Martin Bright in, in New Deal of the Mind, of the creative industries can create some more wealth and more jobs. Of course, all of this goes under the huge shadow of the debt crisis I referred to earlier. So I want to end as I pass the, the bat and the microphone to Ed with a, a great remark from Lord Rutherford, who split the atom on a shoestring in 1917. And he said something I think is enormously appropriate for the times in which we live. He said, we have no money, so we shall have to think. What a good maxim for where we are now. And who better to lead on that than Ed Vasey?
Uh, Eddie got into Parliament in 2005, so he's clearly moving very fast up the power slipstream, already ranked 64th in the recent survey of top 100 power barons, and a leap of four, year, four, four positions in just one year. Uh, uh, but it's, uh, but along, along with Jeremy Hunt, it's absolutely clear the arts is no longer a B-stream anymore for Conservative politicians. This is very much an A-team. And as a uh, shadow culture minister, he set up the independent task force under John Tuzer that I referred to earlier. And I think his blog, which I'm sure all of you look at a lot, reveals that uh, he and Jeremy engage themselves in the arts in a way that I think no politician has before on either side of the House of Commons. So, Ed Vasey, all blog and no blag. For five minutes, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks very much, Robin, for that uh, introduction. It reminds me of when my mum met Brian Ferry and she walked in, the first thing she said to him was, Brian, you're a capital climber. So, um, uh, thank you for saying that I'm a right-wing climber. That's a very good position to be in. Uh, what would the arts look like under a Conservative government? I think they'd look like Robin. I think they would be sober, yet somehow flamboyant, highly intelligent, standout, successful, and brilliant. Uh, so Robin is going to be my metaphor for how the arts would look under the Conservatives. Um, and thank you for mentioning uh, the email. Jeremy and I send out a weekly email, which I hope most of you will receive, but I can update you that we're getting even more technologically savvy. We've started a blog called Culture Politic, and Politic has got a K on the end, just to show that we're quite with it. And uh, we've also uh, joined this network called LinkedIn, uh, where we ask... Uh, <laughs> I'm told it's a social network for business people, and we ask, uh, we ask questions on it. And yesterday I asked a question about what to do about illegal downloading. Uh, and I might ask the question next week, should the arts look like Robin White? But uh, we'll, 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 make a, we'll take a view on that. Uh, briefly, a run around their houses where we are in terms of our policy development. Uh, as you know, we're very committed to uh, culture in this country. I think, think it's fantastically important. We will work very hard to do the best we can by it. And that means, first of all, recognising the importance of the mixed economy in the arts, uh, I go on and on. Uh, in fact, I was quite worried that the speech I gave yesterday uh, uh, looked almost identical to Alan Davies' speech, and we hadn't uh, uh, cross-referred. But we both made the point, which I think is absolutely right, that uh, the arts, I think, have a very unfair image, as it were, in the body politic, that they are somehow these subsidy junkies that um, sit like chicks in the nest waiting for large checks from government. In fact, that's completely untrue. Uh, what I like to say, the arts are probably the most efficient public sector institutions in this country, which is a very clunky phrase, but it makes the point that most of these so-called subsidised organisations only receive about a third of their funding from government. They raise the rest through sponsorship. I'm getting some kind of weird world in terms of the microphone, uh, uh, in, in sponsorship and selling tickets and so on, and they work extremely hard to do so. And when you consider the output from someone like Jude, for example, over at the South Bank, in terms of the input from government, uh, it's quite phenomenal in terms of the amount of productions that come out of uh, these organisations and the way they ripple across the whole cultural fabric of the nation. So I think that's a very important point to make. The arts uh, can and should stand up for themselves as being, uh, I think, a beacon of how uh, government and the private sector can work together. Uh, we're committed absolutely to free museums. Don't uh, uh, try and read anything into anything that anyone uh, can or might say in any position of authority. Uh, there are no ifs and no buts. Free museums are here to say, uh, stay come hell or high water. Uh, the major change we want to make is to the lottery, which would be good news for the arts and heritage. We want to 
return the lottery to the four good causes so that um, uh, the arts in particular would receive on current figures about £50 million extra a year. Uh, the proportion of lottery funding they would get would rise from the current 16.6% to 20%. What to do about the Arts Council? Uh, John Chuser did make some radical recommendations that the Big Five should be funded by the Arts Council. We've decided, uh, funded by the Department of Culture rather than by the Arts Council. We've decided not to do that, partly because it's not worth the bun fight. We don't want to take on Jude in a, in a big bun fight. Uh, but also, uh, we think there are smarter ways of, of, of reforming the Arts Council. We would, for example, like to see organisations like the South Bank get much longer-term funding deals from the Arts Council, and that would require a partnership with government to see that through and effectively be allowed to get on with it, because I think the idea that uh, people like Jude or Tony Hall need uh, close supervision from a government quango is pretty laughable. Uh, they're very good at the job they do. Um, and that might also extend to some of the other organisations the Arts Council funds. About half its budget goes on 50 organisations, which, as it were, could be regarded as, as the core of the uh, arts institutions in this country. And what I would like to see the Arts Council do more of is uh, development, if you like, uh, in terms of, you know, it's in a unique position to uh, look at some of the innovations that are going on uh, across the piece. So when the National Theatre telecasts FEDRA, for example, that is a highly innovative move by the National Theatre. The Arts Council should be taking that example and getting out there uh, to, um, to uh, educate other arts organisations about how it's done so that people aren't uh, going out and reinventing the wheel. Uh, someone in this room sent me an email yesterday saying they're in an organisation that has vast membership in the hundreds of thousands, uh, so they've got a massive grassroots support for their organisation that's the kind of thing that arts organisations should be doing. I completely agree with that, and I see a role for the Arts Council to take that example and go out and uh, give other arts organisations the skills to build a grassroots network. So that's how I'd like to see the Arts Council change. Museums, libraries and archives is another quango that we have responsibility for. It's working more closely with the Arts Council. I, say, I, don't, I don't think it does the job of looking after libraries very well. That's a separate issue perhaps from what we might debate this morning, but we would like to see some form of libraries development agency doing that same work that I want to see the Arts Council doing, going out to local authorities and teaching them about good library practice. Gift aid and philanthropy, uh, as you know, we want to simplify gift aid, and we're looking very hard at uh, being able to give works of art when you're alive, but obviously that's subject to financial constraint. Finally, as you may have read in the Evening Standard yesterday, I want Led Zeppelin to headline the Cultural Olympiad. Uh, because I'm quite middle-aged and I couldn't name a single band that any of you might listen to. Uh, but it, it, all recommendations are welcome. The, the point is that I'd like the Cultural Olympiad to be a much bigger party for London uh, and the Olympics than perhaps uh, a sober, uh, worthy affair. But I am having conversations with Tony Hall about that, who seems very open to my slightly wacky ideas. Um, so that's a run around the arts. I don't know whether you want me to stray into broadcasting. We could be here for hours if I do that. Well, just a couple of mouthfuls of wisdom. Uh, well, I wouldn't go that far. Um, but uh, certainly, I mean, I don't want anyone, again, I think the, the press, as we know, can sometimes be mischievous, which is extraordinary, I know. But um, the idea that we're taking on the BBC is, is, is laughable. I mean, we're, we're huge fans of the BBC, but there are certain points that need to be recognised. First of all, the size and scope of the BBC... Uh, is immense and it uh, is damaging the uh, broadcasting ecology so the BBC needs much clearer guidelines about the kind of things it should be doing 
We don't think the BBC Trust is providing that. We want a stronger external regulator of the BBC. We do think the BBC should be more transparent. There is just no if or but about the fact that it should publish the salaries of uh, its top talent and its staff, its licence fee payers' money, and people are entitled to know uh, where that money is going. Uh, we don't, however, want to top slice the licence fee. Uh, we don't want independently funded news corporations. Uh, we don't think using state money uh, to prop up certain parts of the broadcasting sector is the right way to go. The better way to go is to deregulate uh, as much as possible uh, channels like ITV and so on so that they're able to compete uh, in this new internet age. Uh, we broadly agree with the government in terms of ISPs having a role in combating illegal piracy, but we're holding our fire on what we think is the best method. Uh, as an opposition, it's our duty to cross-examine the government on whatever proposals they come forward with, and that's what we'll do when the Digital Economy Bill comes forward. And uh, we don't support the telephone tax for broadband. We think there are much smarter ways of bringing private investment in uh, to ensure that we get super-fast broadband rolled out across the country. Thank you very much indeed, Ed. Brilliant summary, um, and in a moment, you know, we, we can you can raise your your voice whether you agree or disagree or add to that particular debate. But but first of all, we, it's great to have Jude with us, um, who may give an alternative perspective on some of these issues. Jude, as I'm sure we all know, is from across the river, artistic director of the South Bank, Britain's largest cultural institution. But you're, you're much more than that. You've been a leading player on the cultural stage for, for a long time. And every time I go to the uh, Badsey Arts Centre, I'm really grateful that you actually started it. It's still an innovative and wonderful organisation. You've been an amazing director of Shakespeare in particular. Uh, you've established, I think, one of the most interesting things you've done is metal, uh, which uh, through its artistic laboratory stage uh, produces a platform for artistic hunches linked into community. Much more besides, I somehow doubt that you voted Conservative in the last general election, but I'd love to hear your perspective on how a Conservative government, in your view, might affect, for better or worse, the arts for the next five minutes. Okay. <laughs> well, I think that what is um, very positive about the last three years, I think it's three years that you've been climbing your... That's right. Is that right? Yeah, no, I climbed three years ago and got stuck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unashamed validation for the arts and the creative industries is what Ed and Jeremy have been proposing. And I think that, from any politician, is a tremendous thing that we need. And a sophisticated validation. So, I mean, I've been heartened to feel that we're not actually swinging between the, those really, I think, very tired ideas about access versus excellence, but actually talking about these two things side by side as an essential ingredient. I mean, I don't think there's been a better essay on culture than Matthew Arnold's um, Culture and Anarchy. And I think that the whole idea of beauty and expression and then the right for everyone's imagination to count, they have to live side by side in a society that's healthy. Um, I just want to say, you know, what I believe in. I do believe in a mixed economy culture. So I do believe in the debate about how you spend taxation. And I do believe that that lands very squarely in a shared discussion which the politicians are absolutely crucial to. So I, I wouldn't favour a situation where, you know, arts councils or anybody else went off into a darkened room and made all the decisions themselves. Because I think that leads to a situation where the arts suddenly appear to be in a bubble, separate from society, and that's not right. So in that respect, I think that the, the, the current um, blogging and um, 
Lincoln's and all the rest of it that Ed and Jeremy have been doing have been really helpful. And as, as under a Conservative government, I think that linking in what Ed and Jeremy have been proposing into practical realisation of the next step of the cultural and creative industries, along with Ian Duncan Smith's absolutely extraordinary work, recognising that the poorest communities of this country, unless you attend to them, are, are going to cripple both themselves and a future economy. I think putting those two stories together is what I hope that the Conservative government, if they get in, will do. Um, and I think that marries with some of the most interesting movements in culture at the moment, because if you look at the relationship between the Simon Bolivar Orchestra, Gustavo Dudamel in particular, his relationship with Baron Boyd and all the work that he's been doing, his relationship with Lang Lang and what he's been trying to do in China, you will notice that some of the supremos of arts, and I mean those are the performing arts, are genuinely interested in how they can both excel as their own personal artist and as a role model, but also, you know, what, what is the role of the artist as a leader in their own society? We've got a, an Ed Ruscher exhibition on at the Hayward at the moment, and you'll see very clearly from that that going into art school as he did, thinking he might be a graphic designer, but suddenly discovering that actually, no, he wanted to be a fine artist. He always mixed those two stories up, and he, has, he was, as, was and remains as inspired by the commercial world outside, taking it back into his art, which is then you know, filched from, quite rightly, plagiarised by graphic artists back into the world of commerce. It's that virtuous circle that I think we have to recognise. And I, I do believe that, it, that the next phase of, um, of economy in this country should rest on, and securely rest on, the fact that the creative and cultural industries are still booming, are still moving forward, and offer an umbrella for all kinds of people from the most aesthetically interested in form to those craft-based skills which people who, are, who don't see themselves as academic can contribute to. And I think if we could put that together and be a place in the way that the, um, the city has been, maybe will be again, a place that the world look to as the number one centre for finance and training in finance, I think that the UK under any government should be thinking of that being their primary interest now. And I'd just like to stop there and say that the other thing that I think that Jeremy and Ed particularly have been interested in is how you take edu arts education, specifically music education in their case, but how do you take arts education and how do you look at the models in Finland in particular, or Scandinavia as a whole actually, and measure the impact of arts education on achievement. And I think that they have led that story more clearly than any other uh, politicians so far, and I would hope that that goes hand in hand in new policies too. Do you think, thank you very much indeed. I think two themes which are particularly interesting from what you said. One is the, the involvement of arts in the whole campaign for social justice, uh, which in Duncan Smith has, has, has led on, and also, as you correctly say, arts education. Um, you know, how can we get the creativity agenda working through the schools and not simply through the creative economy? So thanks for that, and thanks all to all my panellists for being so brilliantly punctual and just doing their wonderful five minutes of wisdom, and then we can all talk about it. Our, ne our next uh, member of our distinguished panel is, uh, is Tessa Ross, who I hadn't met until now, but I've been a great fan of hers for quite some time for the extraordinary work that you've done on Channel 4, where you're now a controller of film and drama. Uh, gave rise to the wonderful slum dog millionaire. Sadly, you're not the slum dog millionaire s, 
but it does show what happened when extraordinary creative talent gets extraordinary leadership with what you've been doing. Um, quite apart from all the numerous film releases and, and drama productions you've been responsible for, I've been pretty interested in the way you brought new ways for the whole production of films and plays, going back right until 1993, which I think when you set up that the BBC's independent commissioning group went outside uh, and created an output of, output of 120 uh, hours of film, television and drama. There was a really interesting new way which, which you led. Channel 4 clearly has challenges, as indeed do the BBC and the ITV. So Tessa, for good or bad, how do you see the arrival uh, by perhaps this time next year of a Conservative government with this young man in a prominent role? Well, I've had the pleasure of sitting with Ed on more than one panel now and um, found him to be saying all the things that I think make me hopeful that the things that I care about might be protected. Um, but the first thing to say, I think, is that uh, Channel 4, which I sit here representing, is a fundamental part of an ecology which is absolutely about the BBC. So it's brilliant to hear you say, Ed, that you love the BBC, you care about the BBC, because I think I feel, and I suspect all of us feel in different ways, that we respond to it and we're part of what it is. Um, as an outsider, Channel 4 is a curious, naughty, difficult, often creating possibility at the edges where the BBC becomes the mainstream down the line. So for me, that's a huge part of the public service ecology. Um, and clearly, uh, Channel 4 it has been um, core to seeding businesses. I mean, what you described my work at the BBC as being, which was actually about protecting talent um, by feeding them to independent production companies. It was, it was the beginning of the growth of the independent sector post-Channel 4 um, for the BBC, when they were committed to spending 25% of their budget outside of the building. And really, it was my job to talk to writers and directors and say, and by the way, the, there are these people too. They can work with you and they can support you. But fundamentally, in terms of policy, where film and, and um, Channel 4's future are concerned, and film is a tiny, small proportion of what Channel 4 spends on programming, um, the single most important thing for us is that Channel 4 is protected as a public service broadcaster, that it is absolutely, with or without public aid, other support, protected um, to do what it does, which is to raise money from the commercial sector through advertising and to deliver with quality is its highest ambition. Um, and much of the conversation over the last year or two has been about why we don't have enough money. But the truth is, we have enough money to be safe and sure and survive. It just means we do a little bit less and a little bit better and find greater and stronger partnerships outside. And film is a really strong crystallization of this. Um, um, and in film, public money and protected public money, which exists in the form of a tax credit for film, and which Ed has said before that he will protect and believes is working well, um, the Film Council, which is a public body funded by lottery money, and the BBC and Film 4 form the absolute cornerstones of public money for film in this country. And what that means to me is the freedom to start little seeds of ideas, which only when they're delivered down a huge long line, which could be over four or five years, become viable, become valuable, become monetized. And of course, that's becoming different in this new age where every CEO of every broadcasting company is standing up and saying, yes, the world has changed. Instead of waiting six months, a year, two years to wait for the cinema to open and the DVD to come out and television to eventually acquire on Sky or on, on terrestrial television that film, you can now at the click of a button have it on the internet at the same time as you go to the cinema and the audience will choose how they watch what they watch. And that is a huge, huge fundamental shift in our industry, which we've got to get to get through the, across film and telly. 
but in film particularly because the event has been such a huge part of what we do, protecting the seed of that event, the writer, the director, the process of thinking and imagining is going to be the thing that buys us our future. And I've always said to every company, your future is in your development. And as Ed describes the Arts Council's possibilities, I absolutely agree that spending money on ideas early, early on, it's all baby seed, will buy us 10 or 20 years of great product at the other end. So that's a very quick summary. Thank you very much indeed, Tessa. And you can talk to Tessa and talk about some of those interesting points you made um, at the end of this, this first round. Now, Dan um, kindly contributed to a slender volume I wrote uh, on art sponsorship and the brain, and that is, in fact, the least amongst his numerous and erudite, informed and engaging writings on the subject of design and architecture. He's present, presently uh, director of the Design Museum in London. You must be absolutely thrilled that the planning permission has just been granted so the Design Museum can move across town to the re redeveloped Commonwealth Institute building from its former banana factory beside the Thames where you reside at the moment. Uh, there you did, in fact, there you studied architecture. I think you decided you didn't have the necessary, I quote from a, something you wrote, patience and unwavering self-belief to practice it. So took on the more modest role of becoming a cultural academic who wears his suit of learning lightly and with grace. It includes being director of Glasgow's uh, 99 City of Architecture, being professor of the Academy of Applied Art in Vienna, publishing many, many books on art design uh, and architecture, the latest of which, The Language of Things, includes the, this remark, quote, the more useless an object, the more highly valued it will be. It's a view that I entirely share and creates a platform for Dan for five minutes on why he thinks an incoming Conservative government will value that most useless, useless of all things, the arts. I think one of the nicest things about Britain is that probably um, the world of arts and culture won't look that different um, in five years' time because, by and large, Britain doesn't do things like mainland Europe, where when I worked in Italy for four years during the first Berlusconi regime, um, I encountered um, a minister of culture named Vittorio Sgarbi, um, who uh, was once memorably described as treating his role as a minister as if it was a Dadaist performance work. Um, <laughs> It included threatening to dynamite the um, new building to house the Ara Pacis in Rome because he didn't like Richard Meyer's architecture and firing the president of the um, Venice Biennale because, well, actually, it wasn't anything that the president had said, but the director of film had said something rather rude about Berlusconi. So he was sacked. And then Scarby appointed his successor, who he suggested should jump in the canal publicly. So we don't do that, nor, we, nor do we do things uh, as they do in Madrid, where every incoming administration goes through the museum directors and decides who's going to stay and who's not going to stay. Britain is great because we don't do that by and large. There is, I think, a sense of continuity and I hope that um, our natural scepticism about words that get rubbed clean of meaning doesn't drop some of the important things that are happening in terms of this thing called the creative industries, which is a term I find sets my teeth on edge a bit, but we know it matters. We know that in the last 10 years it created until the last crunch around 30,000 jobs a year. We know that it created something like 14 billion pounds worth of exports. And it's stuff that we're good at. It's architecture, it's design, it's fashion, it's graphics. It matters a lot. It's not just the money, it's also the sense that Britain has of itself. It means the difference between being at the center of things rather than the periphery, by which I mean if we t simply turn into passive consumers and we consume fashion made and designed elsewhere, 
just in, as we consume films made elsewhere, or cars or architecture made by others, we are turned into a cargo cult. We sit here and consume passively. If we design, if we create, we're doing something which touches the rest of the world. The rest of the world knows that too. So everywhere you go now, <clears throat> there are task forces looking at the creative industries. Um, Taiwan, I was in last weekend, they want one. Singapore wants one. Shenzhen wants one in China. Um, there is a huge amount of competition for this. It's, it's just, I mean, the trouble with ideas in this world is that there's very few of them, and they communicate around the world like wildfire, and the creative industry is, is one of those. So I think you know, it, it behoves us, and it behoves, I'm sure, that, that any, any administration would see this as a, a crucial part of what it's going to do, is to ma maintain this position that Britain has, to, to maintain our position at the center of things rather than the, the edge of things. And that's a complex ecology. I, um, it's, there is an interrelationship between doing design or architectural fashion or art and teaching it and learning it. And one of the things I find slightly disturbing is that this ecology is being undermined. Um, education in this country, higher education, has been industrialized. Um, it's become an industry. Um, every university in Britain is sending its scouts off to recruit people in the Far East, in Asia, and they're brought here. And it means that some of the special things about education here are being diluted. Um, in the old days, a foundation course at an art school was a chance for students to discover themselves. Um, there were no fees. They spent a year looking at various different aspects of what they might want to be. Um, it was about 100 people. Now, certain foundation years at some um, former art schools in London are in the hundreds and you're losing that sense of what this could be. So in the long term, something which Britain has been really, really good at could be under threat. Thank you very much. Um, and last but not least, someone whose name is almost as challenging as Dan Zick Ocean, um, our final panelist. He's artistic director of the ICA, but I'm sure you all know also chairman of the commissioning group for Trafalgar Square's fourth plinth. Um, and that's been brilliantly original, uh, the Anthony Gormley's 100-day artwork, One and Another, which has just, just ended. The last, like, 2,004 participants spent their 60 minutes in the limelight. Um, I think it was a great initiative, and well done for that. Your other uh, achievements include being a distinguished author, nominated for the Orwell Prize for Political Writing in 2006, and always being a consummate performer on BBC Two's Newsnight, where I've often watched you. I'm sure you'll provide as original and insightful perspective on a Conservative government as you provide with your recent Trafalgar Square sculpture project. The plinth is yours, but only for five minutes, not 60. Very elegant, Robin. Um, you know, largely in agreement with um, many things that have been said, so I'm not going to talk for too long. Um, the first thing to say is that, um, uh, as you were saying, and the fact has been mentioned largely, I think... Um, I think uh, the role that Ed has played over the last uh, couple of years in terms of actually giving a voice to what uh, art policy under the Tories uh, can look like has been exemplary, actually, because I think he's you, managed to form a genuine conversation um, with uh, those of us who work in the arts, and that's very much appreciated, in fact. Um, and, you know, it feels like you can have a very open conversation that way. Um, that's good. Um, some of the stuff I worry about simultaneous to that, and as, as, as we look forward, um, is far less about Ed and, and his ability to grasp a complicated landscape, which he does excellently, um, and actually more just in general, really, about what the cultural landscape might look like in the next um, few years to come. Um, and I guess I worry about that because we can move from, because what we'll see is a move from words to actions, 
and that's some of my concern here. Um, some of my concern, just even listening to, to, to sort of debate, I'll pick up a couple of things. Um, one is that um, gov this government, potential next government to come, has been very good at, um, at highlighting some of the significances of, of creative industries. The, the stuff that um, I'm concerned with, it actually isn't per se creative industries, design, fashion, and so on, but actually is the more evanescent stuff is art, is culture. And uh, that's always much more difficult to pin down in terms of social value. Um, you know, things like an Ed Richet show, it's difficult to quantify what the value of that is. Um, and, you know, most of the work uh, that I do with the ICA and that lots of other institutions do um, is engaged in that territory. And the difficult thing for us is, well, uh, you know, how do we, uh, you know, how do we make a case for that when it comes to government? And I think most of what we, most of what our, or much of what our energy is devoted to at the moment is doing the work, but also finding uh, sophisticated ways to engage with uh, communities and publics around that work. And that's a really, really important part of what we do because you know, the cultural landscape has shifted enormously in the last few years. It's shifted in broadcasting, but it's shifted in culture as well to the extent that audiences come to us and they don't just kind of expect to come in and look at a picture on a wall or watch a film. They expect to be engaged. They expect to have a conversation. They expect to have an ongoing communication in the same way that we all have an ongoing communication with each other right now, uh, kind of via you know, our phones, via all sorts of different uh, blogs and so on. Um, and that raises a real challenge for how uh, cultural organizations work and how we communicate with our publics. And I think... Um, one of the important aspects of that is, although we can kind of deride um, some of the social agendarising of Labour and of the Arts Council and so on, one of the important things that, that has arisen over the last few years is this um, just very clear um, policy, really, that uh, it matters who you talk to. It matters how you talk to people. It matters how you engage society in general in artistic practice because... Not everyone has the immediate access and the immediate ways to understand and ways to talk to what culture is. There's an obligation on both sides that comes out of that. One, an obligation for organisations to actually think quite hard about how they talk to people. And two, uh, an opportunity, really, on, uh, an opportunity that can be grasped to actually talk to much greater swathes of the public in many different ways. And that's one of the purposes, that's one of the reasons why you have that kind of Arts Council agenda. And it's kind of blunt. But what it does do is recognise that, in fact, society isn't equal. Society is not automatically open, that not everyone has the same background, not everyone has the same education, not everyone has the same set of social opportunity. And part of my uh, worry, part of the thing that I am um, very exercised about, I suppose, uh, is that we continue with an understanding that, in fact, society is diverse, society is different, and that as a consequence, it's important for us to always keep in mind that our organisations, or the culture as a whole, has a necessary responsibility, a moral responsibility, if you want, to find the ways to talk to people that we can't sit, certainly the ICA or any other organisation, can't just sit in splendid isolation and allow people just to find their own way there. That's one thing in my mind. Um, and the other thing, as a final point, really, just uh, in terms of actions rather than words, um, some of the things, uh, you know, there isn't a Tory government, as yet, there is a, um, 
there was a Conservative administration in, in City Hall in London. As Robin said, I'm the chairman of the Ford Commissioning Group. Um, and some of the things that, that come out of that are very good. It's been fantastic having the mayor's support for uh, Anthony Gormley on the Ford Pit. That's been a fantastic project. It has to be said that um, certainly when Boris was campaigning uh, for the role of mayor, uh, he was against the project and campaigned against the fourth plinth. And that's, you know, that action's not words. Um, equally, um, despite having this uh, fantastic project, fourth plinth, uh, 2,400 people on the plinth, 4 million people on the website, in fact, what's happened next is that we have this bizarre situation right now where we have um, this kind of uh, statue, this 15 metre high statue of a Spitfire pilot made out of fibreglass that's going on the plinth for six months. Um, it's nothing to do with the fourth plinth project. Our aims are to create a world class programme of contemporary art sculpture, of contemporary art, uh, contemporary public art. Um, I won't say very much about that apart from the fact that that stands outside our programme. It stands outside the intentions to make London uh, one of the significant not the significant centre for public art projects in the world. And uh, the notion somehow under, under a Tory administration that you can elide from something as significant and as exciting as Anthony Gormley's project to, like I said, a 15-metre fibre-last statue of a, Spitfire, of a Spitfire pilot seems to me something of a shame and it seems to me um, something that undermines some of the potential that we have as a society, to create culture and, and establish culture as a significant aspect of who we are and how we live, because that statue isn't that, it seems to me. Thank you, thank you very much for reminding us, of course, that we have got, you know, um, with Boris, a Conservative leader of part of Britain at least, and that reminding us too that sometimes a Bullingdon boy can be reformed. Um, we, we've had, a, I think, a really rich uh, menu of things. I'd just like to remind you of some of those themes, and then, then we hopefully can extract contributions from each of you. Um, I, mean, I think from Ed, we got a very good and succinct summary which shows a sympathy for and commitment to uh, the arts in every sense, and I think all the panellists recognise the positive and indeed committed approach of the Conservatives, which I'm, I know we all welcome. I think Jude really you know, stressed the way in which, in fact, demonstrated there is a sort of cultural consensus on a whole range of issues. And I think it's particularly interesting to look at the areas of social justice and the arts and the areas of arts education, which I think could have more focus, and perhaps we can have a bit of a conversation about that. I think from Tessa, it's very useful to get from a practitioner to stress again the, the value and role, central role of the BBC in the public service ecology. Um, um, and indeed, you know, the commitments of, of Channel 4 to outstanding programmes, I'm sure many people have asked before about things like Big Brother and how that all fits in. We can discuss that, no doubt. From, I think, Dan, it was very interesting to get the whole sense of this continuity of culture between, between governments in this country. Uh, I, I wonder, in fact, if there's too much agreement on this platform, if we want to stir it up and, yeah, and look at some of the points of disagreement. Um, but also the stress on how our education has become industrialised, the complex ecology, and are we getting the right sort of stimulus of young people coming through into the cultural industries? Um, and then really important to raise the question, the difference between words and, and what actions actually come about. Um, the crucial need to engage with the community, which again I think the Labour government has led the way. I personally think the social policy has gone too far, but certainly it was a step in the right direction. Maybe we need to tiptoe back from that brink. And of course remember, uh, remember and always mention all gatherings, mention uh, Boris as an interesting and stimulated project of art in his own right. Uh, 
so what I'll do now is throw the microphone to, to all of you. This is being podcast, so please do wait for the microphone to reach you. Um, then if you could say uh, exactly who you are, because even if we recognize you, the, the viewers throughout the world to which this will be transmitted will not know from your voice exactly who you are. And please could you be as brief as possible, so as many people as possible can contribute from all corners of the cultural perspective to this informed and stimulating conversation. So, ladies and gentlemen, the floor is yours. Who is going to be the first to grab the microphone? We have a volunteer right there. My name's Nika McDonald. Among other things, I write about design and program events in this area. Um, and I was doing that in 1996 when Design for the Web, in fact, the web itself, was little known to most people. I'm glad to see that Design Week this week had an editorial saying, we must, we must support interaction design thinking in the UK only 13 years later. Um, if you wouldn't mind, could I quote John Tusa on a subject of arts and elitism, which is a subject I'm surprised hasn't come up here. I know it's a hackneyed subject. Uh, the government must embrace elitism in the arts because it's the only way to deliver excellence. The present government have got themselves into such a knot over elitism, they seem not to care about the quality of what's being done. They spend so much of their time talking about getting the right audiences because they're so worried about arts activities seeming elitist, and that becomes self-fulfilling, is his conclusion. Um, I think this is a crucial subject because New Labour has been very wary about talking about elitism, and it's also been very instrumental in the way it uses the arts. And I'd be interested to get Ed's reaction to uh, Munira Mirza's comments uh, at a lecturer at South Bank University who works with Boris Johnson, although she's not conservative as far as I know, uh, on politicians attacking culture and not being socially useful enough, which has been a key theme of arts policy under New Labour. And she argues that we need to have the best for the most in her cultural metropolis document. And finally, Ed, we haven't talked about design very much. My experience, and this is Viz Dayan's comments, is that although Britain leads the world in design in many ways, it's quite backward-looking in the way it addresses design, particularly design for future forms of interaction. Uh, and designers are quite unworldly, unlike designers in America, Italy, where Dayan talked about, or uh, China, in my experience. Uh, do the Conservatives have a policy about design futures and the creative industries? Three questions wrapped up there, <coughs> which I'm sure Edward can answer uh, those. Um, and then maybe we'll ask one of my other panellists to chip in. Ed, what is your response to that? And John Tudor's remark about elitism. Yeah, I think it's Im important to be clear about what we mean by elitism. I, mean, I think what we want is excellence in the arts, and I think uh, you know, James Pennell recognised that when he commissioned the McMaster Report. Uh, and what we're against is, you know, as you would expect, this, I this idea that the arts are simply there as an instrument of social engineering, if you like. But I think, uh, you know, what Echo was saying, one mustn't lose sight of about the arts being open to as many people as possible. And I think a number of things arise out of that. First of all, the idea that Echo or Jude or others are not, you know, sitting in their organisations thinking we want as few people to come as possible is absolutely laughable. And these organisations do an immense amount of... I won't use the word outreach. I can't remember. Dan doesn't like creative industries. I hate the word outreach, but you know what I mean. And um, I think they should be supported in that. And funnily enough, you know, if you're going to talk about pragmatic stuff, I think the Department of Children, Schools and Families should recognise the enormous amount of work that arts organisations do and back it up as well. So I think that's uh, important. But I don't think uh, we should dumb down. But what I do think, and again, slightly pick up on what Eke said, I'm not sure whether he was actually saying this, but I, I'm going to pick up on it anyway. This point about interactivity, I think a lot of our arts organisations do need to uh, 
learn about how to engage with 21st century audiences. I think there are too many small C conservative arts organisations that continue to do the same kind of thing. And again, I think that's where the kind of Arts Council comes into it. You know, the Arts Council's got a relationship with Echo, it's got a relationship with some of our orchestras and so on. And I suspect uh, one could be surprised about how many people working in the arts as a whole don't know each other and don't have these conversations. And one thing I'd like to do, which is not some kind of government policy, but I'd like to get, you know, a clash of ideas. You know, uh, Robin was saying there's too much agreement around this table, but I think that there's not enough dialogue between cutting-edge arts organisations and arts organisations that are quite happy to rest on their laurels and everyone needs a bit of shaking up. So I think that's important. Uh, do we have a design policy? <laughs> Careful how I phrase this. Uh, I've begun to engage with the Design Council. One of the problems, I think, with design, well, not a problem, but a, a whitehall problem, if you like, is that it kind of sits between these two departments, Biz and uh, Department of Culture, uh, and there's a kind of policy debate to be had that you, you know, is design a kind of aspect of industry and manufacturing or is it uh, creative or is it both and how do you marry those two things? It is interesting you mentioned America which wants to now create its own design council, the Chinese are desperate to catch up on design so again without wishing to appear all things to all people you know, our, our basically our design policy would be to ensure that uh, our lead in design, if I can put it that way, and Dan may disagree, is maintained and that we continue that Britain continues to be a focus of design education uh, and design policy. Thank you very much. Dan, do you want to add something to that? Um, I think Britain is super good at this subject at the moment, and, and you've abs I mean, Ed's absolutely put his finger on it, that there is this chasm between how it's understood. Um, is it about selling more stuff, or is it about reflecting what we think is important in life? And I mean, the best thing about design is it's both. Um, and I would say that the Design Museum in 1989 was opened by one Mrs. Thatcher. So clearly, um, design does figure on the conservative agenda somewhere. It certainly does. Jude. Yeah, I mean, just to pick up this word elite, when you say elite sport, you're talking about the, the, the sports person. And you're not expecting that a very few people will go and see them. You're expecting that hopefully thousands and millions through broadcast will go and see them. When you talk about elite art, the confusion is that people often end up thinking they're talking about an audience. I completely subscribe to the idea that we want the greatest artists in the world to flourish here and unadulterated by any concerns whatsoever, in some cases, except how they make their work. But I would contest the fact that it is up to institutions who, who are then part of a story about how do you build audiences' confidence and knowledge. It's up to institutions to make the bridge between the most esoteric work and, the, and getting a, a big audience, or an audience. Now, so I, I think there's a confusion about the word elite when it's applied to the arts, and that's one of the problems. I mean, the other thing is that, as Echo says, you know, the democratisation of arts and audiences and the shift and, and change and, and kind of coloration of arts audiences, it's nothing to do with the politicians. I mean, this was all happening under Margaret Thatcher. It was happening under John Major. It was happening before that. It's the march of civilization. And what is really irksome is when politicians, and I include strongly what Labour did, when they kind of try to uh, grab it for their own purposes and feed it back to you and say, you know, in my case, feed it back to you and say, well, you will support this level of social intervention, won't you, because you believe basically in you know, egalitarian policies. I completely rejected so much of what was being done finally 
just because of the simplistic nature by which it was being done and how it was spoken of, which is how, why I formed Metal, mm. which is all about creative hunches and nothing to do with sort of testing in advance what you were going to create. So, I mean, my objection really is, and this is where I think Ed has been sophisticated, is politicians need to be involved, advocate for this complex landscape, but not try to railroad it down any particular route. So, you know, I think that the word elite needs to be unpacked. And then also politicians should stop claiming that their policies have actually shifted anything one way or another because they sort of lean on it, but I don't think they have that big an effect. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, Martin Smith, in, in Genius Media, uh, we're investors in film and television, music and so on. The question, uh, Robin, is about cultural R&D. Do we do enough of it? And are politicians going to be able to defend it in a very cold climate? I mean, I use the term R&D deliberately in film terms as development. I mean, film is a very interesting example. Um, our film economy in the UK is actually tiny. If you add BBC Films, Channel 4, tax credit, maybe 50, 60 million this year. Tesla's probably spending two or three on development absolutely crucial. Without it, we do not have a film industry. We do not have a future for the film industry. I'm not sure, and this is the question to the panel really, whether as a society we spend enough on artistic development in the broadest sense, and whether politicians in general understand it well enough to be able to defend it in what is likely to be a very cold climate in the next three or four years. Well, that, that's great. If I can just add a, a bit to that question, because I, I'm going to get through it at Tessa first, and then it, it, maybe Echo could come in on it. Do you think we should have, you know, we missed an opportunity when we didn't adopt the French system, where they actually require get the third of all films in France to be made by French companies in France, which has given a lot of energy into French filming? Do you think that we, we missed out there, quite apart from the more general question that has been asked by Martin? Well, there's the, the, the first question, which is, could we do more? Could we have more money? And is there a policy that might deliver more money? The answer is yes. I mean, fundamentally, protecting... I mean, actually, we, we, this is a, a very tiny part of it, but the film doesn't deliver to Channel 4's public service remit because it's not in our remit. It's huge. Um, so when I went to the House of Lords, for example, one of the... Um, Lords around the table asked me, was I not just wasting money because I'd made all these films, because it wasn't part of our remit. So that's fundamental. Um, and the answer to your question is, yes, France does it brilliantly, but France, France also has this thing called the French language. And we are immediately thrown into Hollywood with our English language. And we have no method of protecting, um, partly because of the size of our country, and partly because our culture is so intertwined with US culture in this particular area, um, what we do differently when Andrea Arnold's Fish Tank or Steve McQueen's Hunger are absolutely at the highest end of what British filmmaking does. They are not widely seen in the place where, our, where the market really exists for our film and where actually it's reflected back on us. Slumdog's success was reflected back from America. That doesn't mean to say we wouldn't have loved it, but its visibility from an American distributor gave us a platform here. Um, but... but, but um, to me, it's a much bigger question about where risk is taken and how it's defended. Um, because, because the point about public service, and which is where I sit and where the BBC sits, is about risk. You're defined by your risk. You're defined by the greatness of your risk and then the huge awfulness of your risk. And in a way, for politicians probably, and as much as for those people defending it, it's about 
allowing yourself and allowing other people to make mistakes, which is a terrible thing to say because there's so little money and actually what we want to do is protect it and only do great work, of course. But the freedom to not always be right in public life, in public work, in arts, and in creative media is fundamental, I think, to delivering greatness. And I, to me, it's about how we hold hands through that process and say, look, I'm not going to kick that person because they got it wrong. I don't want somebody to be fired because they got it wrong. I want them to be better because they got it wrong. And, and I mean, that's a very generalized way of saying, how do we defend that risk? And the more we push at those edges and those boundaries, surely, the more we protect our R&D, which is your, what you're describing. Development is hidden, it's script. But development is also making a film with a first-time director. It's making a piece of television that isn't just seen on the internet, but is on E4, rather, or, and then goes on to Channel 4. Um, when Shameless, which is a hugely mainstream series for us on Channel 4, was first developed, you know, I developed it with Paul Abbott as a single film, which was incredibly depressing, and it became a very upbeat, multi-stranded series over a period of seven years, keeping that thought alive and it may be not working when it started, was hugely important. And I knew that, I felt at the time, the risk was possible. I wouldn't be kicked and fired had it not worked. And I, that's where we have to, I think, protect each other. Uh, and, okay, and then, uh, specifically, you know, what can, you obviously led lots of innovation. What can a Conservative government do to help you more? And then I'll throw the baton back to Ed to respond if I on this particular point. Well, in, in the most utopian of ways, uh, um, I'd say the important thing is to do, uh, to do what Tessa's saying. It's, it's, how you, it's how you create a climate, actually, where uh, risk is valued. Um, one, of the, you know, one of the prevailing trends about British culture in general is that scepticism about contemporary culture as a whole. You know, from contemporary art to many other areas of practice. Uh, you know, Britain finds it quite easy to kind of mock, to point, and so on. Um, one, of the, one of the real shifts I think it's uh, utopianly possible to perform is to say, well, actually, look, many of these things are really good, many of these things are important, not because of their economic value, but because of their intrinsic value. Um, that's difficult to do for governments, for politicians, because actually culture... Um, by and large, or contemporary culture isn't about consensus. It's not necessarily about making us all feel good. It's actually about questioning the world we live in. And that becomes very difficult if you're defending that when it's attacking you to some extent or another. But the important thing about this, the important thing is that, the important thing, I think, for society as a whole is that we have ways of asking questions about who we are, about how we live, about what it is that binds us together or keeps us apart. And some of the most eloquent ways we can do that are through culture, art through artistic practice. And having a, having a society where that kind of questioning is understood to be of value, hence a Steve McQueen film like Hunger, I think is really important. As a side point to that, and we'll probably get onto this later, so I'll just bring it back into the flow right now anyway. Um, it's why I'm very sceptical of some of the scepticism about the BBC. I'm sceptical of one of the memes that comes out of that, the B that BBC should just have two channels, and I know that's not necessarily what Ed's saying, but the BBC should just have two channels and just do what it does and so on. Because actually, in fact, the point about having a, a, a diffuse and spread out BBC isn't because it's a kind of gigantic organisation, but because it's trying to have different forms of conversation. It's trying to have different forms of questioning that exist uh, in different tiers of society. And, the, uh, and I think organisations like the BBC, like Film 4, like the ICA, that manage to do that, I think do that for the betterment of society. That's the R&D. In fact, the questioning is the R&D. And the end result of it are ways that we understand each other better as a society. Do you want to comment on that? 
Um, I think it's important that, uh, I mean, uh, there's kind of, I suspect, an element in Martin's question There's a, about tweaking the tax credit, because I know that uh, the film tax credit, there's a concern that it doesn't fund development costs, so that's a problem. Uh, and certainly uh, using tax credits as a, as a mechanism to uh, encourage development uh, might be a way forward. I think it's interesting, for example, that film gets this tax credit, but video games, a very closely rated and similarly sized industry, gets no support, whereas you look at a, a country like Canada, uh, and Quebec in particular, which is putting a lot of assistance behind uh, video games in order to stimulate that particular sector. But I think um, I would kind of echo what Echo, echo was saying, which is, um, uh, you know, I'd be very wary of government having a policy on innovation and risk because in, inherent in everything that you all do is about taking risks and some of them pay off and some of them don't. You can't necessarily insulate uh, people from the consequences of taking those risks and nor should you. But uh, certainly I, I can see a tax credit as a, as a way forward of uh, stimulating development. Okay, maybe we have two questions. You, you can ask one and then, and then we can group yeah. them together so we can capture more questions. Well, it's really actually Julia Hobsbawm, Editorial Intelligence, to encourage anyone here representing small arts organisations to speak. Someone is just going to be behind me. I mean, one of the things I wanted Ed to comment on briefly is, in the end, a new government is going to have to make choices about funding. And small company X, Y or Z that specialises in dance or drama or teaching is going to apply to someone for funding. And criteria is going to be supplied. And what, what happens if that criteria is not met, but in fact that cauterizes the flow of creativity to an entire community? Who is going to be overseeing that process? Because it seems to me that we're talking at a very high level about policy and about the big idea and about what kind of society we want and creativity. But what about on the ground? How do you, in fact, infuse this country with small amounts of very vital culture? Thank you. I'm Betsy Gregory. I'm artistic director of Dance Umbrella. Uh, we present each year in London an international contemporary dance festival across the city in large, small outdoor, indoor, conventional, unconventional venues. We're at the South Bank at the moment. Um, and m m my question relates to Julia's really, and um, forgive me for being pointed and rather basic. Um, just to add to Julia's question, I assume, Ed, that you are fighting to retain the arts budget if you come into government. And what I'd like to know is what um, arguments are you using and how successful do you think you're likely to be in the face of all the current economic pressures? Because, of course, the arts and culture, for a relatively small amount of money, delivers a huge bang for its buck. Um, we, in fact, uh, we're, we are a regularly funded uh, client of the Arts Council. We raise uh, again as much as we get from the Arts Council and more um, each year but without that support we're nowhere so could you just speak to both of our questions thanks well I don't want to hog the platform when we've got so many uh, experts on it but uh, I mean I, I don't want to get too much uh, you know one of the reasons we talk about you know high policy if you like is that you know 
one doesn't want to be in the position either as a shadow minister or, or whatever, um, you know, to want to hear the clatter of every bedpan uh, in the world of the arts. So, to a certain extent, I think, you know, I wouldn't want to get involved in a detailed debate about how you save small arts organisations and there will be, uh, there are always limited funds and you could double the Arts Council's budget tomorrow and probably uh, spend it on very good organisations, all of whom would probably deserve an Arts Council grant, but we li live in the real world. And I would say that again about the kind of uh, the cuts agenda, if you like, that, uh, you know, what, what I've said uh, is that cutting frontline arts uh, can be very self-defeating because if you cut a few hundred thousand here or there from a, an arts organisation that depends on that grant, uh, first of all, you send a signal to people who support it privately and sponsorship and so on that you're not committed to it, uh, which is damaging, but uh, you know, the arts have long-term programmes they put in place which are important, uh, and you're not going to get rid of the deficit by cutting the arts. I mean, if you uh, cut the arts budget by 40 million, you're not going to make much of a dent in a 750 billion pound deficit. But having said that, I also think it's very important for the arts community to be realistic and sensible, if you like. You know, everyone is going to take a hit because of the state of the economy. And if the arts are seen to say, look, we are untouchable, uh, I think that will send a, a bad message. Not, not quite as bad, not nearly as bad as bankers saying we still deserve our bonuses. But everyone has to, to a certain extent uh, share the pain. And now, my mantra is that I think we can protect quite a lot of what's going on in frontline arts organisations by adopting the Robin White, Ernest Rutherford principle of thinking smarter as the money becomes tighter. And, you know, if you want me to be absolutely candid and brutal, I would much rather a spare £30,000 went to somebody who was performing rather than somebody who was uh, in a back room filling out forms to report to the DCMS about whether or not the targets have been met. So, uh, and I think you can find savings there. And I, I, you know, I absolutely believe that. Yeah, well, I, I think one of, the, one of the reasons I suspect why... One of the reasons I suspect why there's a lot of consensus around the table, and in general, actually, is that the art, arts and culture have been going through a kind of restoration, which is a direct result of the investment that has been made for a long time. And that's allowed a, a, a sort of dialogue to exist where people have been able to talk sanely about how mutual, mutuality is working, you know, and that's been fantastic. So we're all frightened of the idea of cutting away that restoration because we don't think that's actually a smart thing to do. So, I, you know, I don't buy into or don't make the argument that you're an exception to the rule because it's pain for everybody. I don't agree with that because actually I truly do believe that the UK's creative and cultural economy is its best placed um, you know, best place asset now and we should carry on investing in it you can't possibly have an ecology of the arts if you don't start at the bottom and allow the really vigorous small hunches to exist and so I think it's about how with this consensus at the moment we can build up a set of ideas that, that really recognises the fact that big organisations have got to be supporting housing and learning from small organisations and that's also got to be a rebalancing of London and the regions which I know is a very unpopular thing to say but you know all ideas do not stem from London we know that 
and, and actually there's, a, there's real severe situations beginning to happen with local authorities right around the country and actually that's where I think the arts sector needs to go out and bat not so much just for the Arts Council, but the local authority cuts. They fund more, local authorities fund much more of the arts than central government do. I think um, what is important about what Jude says is that we can now have an argument, which uh, is what Robin wants. Uh, because, uh, you know, I hear what Jude says about that the arts uh, should be immune, and you're quite right to be an advocate for your sector. For me, as a politician, from where I'm sitting, what I find intensely frustrating is a, is a kind of black and white debate. You know, either you're an art cutter or you're an art supporter. And I think we do need to be sophisticated about it. For example, if you take the Thatcher years, and I find, again, this is very uh, frustrating because, you know, the Tories are depicted as these as kind of Viking hordes that came over the hill and just wielded their axes to the arts without anyone making the point. You know, the economy in 1979, as it is in 2009, was effectively on its knees. Uh, and a lot of very tough decisions had to be taken to get the, art, to get the economy back on track. And by getting the economy back on track, we, I think, saw the beginnings of a boom uh, in the arts. And I also think one of the lessons from Thatcher years was the arts did get smarter. Uh, and we did embed this mixed economy with much more, uh, a much greater philanthropy and support from uh, business. So uh, I just... You know, I, I will fight for the arts if uh, we win the election and I become the arts minister. But there has to be a recognition about the economic context in which we're all operating. And no one, I think, can say we should be immune from this, and nor should it simply, you know, tough decisions have to be made. What I hope won't come back uh, from the arts is a chorus of, oh, yeah, we always knew it with the Tories. We always knew this was going to happen because, frankly, you know, we didn't create the economic situation that we might inherit and we would be the ones who would have to deal with it if we had to win the election. Accepting all of that, it's a harsh climate, that's very true, no one's immune from that, that's very true. Just interesting though, where do you think the fat is? As you know I defend um, the arts as I did in my opening remarks about being one of the most efficient public sector organisations in the country, and it's a clunky phrase but I use it deliberately uh, as kind of political language, but I just think you know you can work smarter one can work smarter, not you, Echo, in particular, <laughs> can work smarter. And you will have to think about creative ideas, perhaps about sharing services. Uh, uh, you know, similar arts organisations could share back office functions and so on. But as I say, you know, I think there will have to be some smart thinking in order to protect frontline arts organisations. But I'm just saying that we have to live in the real world. And while I will fight for the arts budget, and I think that we can protect a lot of frontline arts organisations, we shouldn't pretend that if there are going to be cuts that the arts can somehow stand aloof from them. Ed mentioned the word business and I'd like to bring in I think arts and business over there as one of the next questions because the private sectors, we haven't really talked, heard their voice, has been a major funder of the arts. Um, so that's one question there and then we can group it with another one. Sebastian Paul from Arts and Business. I wanted to endorse Ed's comments about the, uh, about the arts not being subsidy junkies because in, in, you're absolutely right. The amount of money that's come in from the private sector um, has been phenomenal and Robin's numbers showed that earlier, over just under £700 million. And that's thanks to the arts organisations being particularly good at raising money through corporate sponsorship, philanthropy and ticket sales. But there was a comment yesterday made, I think, Ed, in, one, uh, in, your, in your speech about... Um, the, the evolving role of the Arts Council in terms of leading on fundraising. And I just wanted to see what your view was on our continuing role to support advocacy, corporate sponsorship as experts in that field, given the role of the private sector is likely to need
need to take over the forthcoming years and whether you see that as being an, an evolving, continuing vision on behalf of Arts and Business from your perspective. One question over there, so will Arts and Business be getting a bigger slice of the smaller cake? At, at Lucy Kimball Said, Business School, um, but my question is not a business question, sorry, it's a slightly different question. The conversation this morning is appropriately about what's going to happen under the next government, which may well be you as Minister. Um, I'd like to speculate a little further ahead, 10 years, 20 years, this idea of cultural R&D has come up. And um, a lot of the institutions represented here and that we're all familiar with, the BBC and so on, are quite old. I'm not saying old is bad. I come from a university which is 800 years old. I, I don't think institutions being old doesn't make them not good at innovation. However, the cultural institutions for many people are Google, um, YouTube, Flickr, and so on. These are not physical entities although there are physical things involved in their, their institutionalizing. So I'm, I'm interested in, it partly picks up Nico's question from earlier, what kinds of institutions might need to be invented as part of the ecology um, for a world which is networked and global and where cultural experience um, is not just about being in a physical space. I'm not saying that you're not all experimenting with that, I know you are, but I'm looking to, you know, it's, it's a radical, and what are those radical innovations? What are you speculating about those, and what sort of policy might support those happening and being part of the British ecology rather than coming from somewhere else? So, so two great questions, one about business and the arts funding and one about the, the world of the web. So I don't always pick on Ed. Let's start with Tessa, particularly on that, the, the, the new institutions, where they're going to come from, etc. Well, you're, you're describing... Uh, search engines as a cultural institution which doesn't create any content. So whilst I agree with you that people find so much, I mean that's where a lot of people go searching, the truth is that what they search for is what we need to protect. And so in that R&D world, it seems to me that the most important part of what we do is going to be defining more and more part of what Ed was talking about in how we protect smaller institutions and find those partnerships with larger ones is also about how individually as cultural supporters, if you like, R&D and developers and producers, we define more and more specifically and clearly what it is we stand for, so that those people who go to Google rather than to um, a cinema or YouTube to find the kind of bit of Channel 4 programming that they haven't got a television to watch it on, actually know what we stand for and can find it through that reputation, if you like, rather than anything else. Um, but, but the single biggest problem that you describe or that you look forward to is that those are not investors in content. And we have to understand that, that either we say to those people, look, you want to be access to all, then actually you have to give back to what it is you're giving access to. Um, and I don't have the answer to that, but actually we are, we are, you know, what we're trying to do is in this new world, whilst we understand it and find partnership within it, and look to a future where maybe everybody finds everything they watch, read and think about online and not through buildings and shared experience, which I hope isn't the case. Um, but what we, what we individually stand for, being absolutely clear, what does, what does a Film for Film mean? What does a Channel for program mean? And the more we're able to stand up for those things, I honestly think the more we'll protect it. Then, going forward 10 years to the cultural architecture of the future, do you have a viewpoint? I think the challenge for, for, for so many um, areas of culture is this switch from physical to uh, dematerialized things. 
and uh, I'm trying to come to terms with that. Um, I mean, massive and rapid change is daunting. It's, um, we're just beginning to realize the impact of um, the abolition of forgetting. Um, there was a very challenging piece uh, in one of the Sundays about this fact that we can now no longer forget anything. And I mean, that's a very hugely transforming thing about the way we live. And, and I suppose deep down, that is why culture matters. It is trying to help us find a way through this daunting transformation that we're going through. The thing about cultural organisations, and, and it's one of the things that you're gesturing to anyway, is that we're always behind the curve. In fact, actually, all of this stuff is already happening anyway. And actually, one of the, one of the opportunities, obligations, whatever, however we, we call it, one of the things that we have to address is how we keep up with those shifts. And in fact, already, you look at uh, what the tape does, or in fact, Channel 4 or the BBC, and the ways that they... Uh, and the increasing ways that they now think about how they talk to their audience mean that it's not just how they operate online, the ways they network online aren't just peripheral things to those organisations. They actually increasingly become at the heart of not just how they communicate, but also what they actually do. And I'm quite interested in, in those shifts because, yes, as Tessa says, it's about uh, protecting the integrity of what you are, but also, there is, a, there is an interest in development that's already taken place where um, any institution that actually is smart about uh, and is thinking about its future is already transforming itself in line with the, with the shift in expectations that are already taking place amongst the public. So your horizon isn't 10 years away. Um, it's quite close. And the question that Tess posed, which I think is a really accurate one, is what your Googles and your YouTubes actually do in response to the changes that are already happening from cultural organisations as well. It's not just a one-way thing where we disappear and they rise. It's actually the, the interest in what happens in that dynamic. Okay. It's interesting to put that in the, in the context today. We're talking about the conservative world. Mm. And what does conservative mean in, in, in a period of massive change? When you find, in our field, for example, um, architecture is challenging stuff and most people don't like it. You know, it's, it's that what do we do in a world which many people don't feel very comfortable with moving? I mean, you know, you are always looking forward, and most of you know, that's, but what does one do about those who look, rather look back? And it's just a very basic question, which is that if broadcast television as we exist is paid for by advertising revenue, and that's decreasing, but what we're doing with that revenue is paying program makers, filmmakers, writers, thinkers to talk, write, do and that is decreasing. We need absolutely to find that relationship with an audience and with other forms of revenue which will allow us to do it in this new world. And that is the hugest, biggest single debate. That's the most interesting thing. I mean, we've just launched something called Global Poetry Systems, which is completely virtual all around the country and then going to go international, picking up on poetry that already exists in different spaces and people adding to it. And people are adding to it side by side. So Sam and Armitage would add something along with somebody who works in their local, local fish shop, actually, Chinese possibly, takeaway, who knows. Um, and, and actually, you know, Simon is interested in what's being added from people who are not poets with a capital P. And that is changing how art is being made. So we need to work with virtual systems because it is the way that new, new voices emerge. So there's two things for Ed, one about the web and also specifically about the role of business and private sector funding it helping in this new situation. Well, I raised uh, fundraising simply as uh, really in the way I raised Led Zeppelin. Uh, that, uh, you know, I just wanted to give some examples of what I see uh, arts agencies being able to do in terms of uh, educating 
or training or inspiring arts organisations around the country. And if arts and business is doing that, uh, that's fantastic. And I think, again, you're basically a client of the Arts Council, so I'm sure you work incredibly closely together to ensure that uh, as many organisations as possible receive support in how to fundraise. Uh, as far as um, uh, the digital world and, and, and change, and not, I mean, in a sense, what I said at the beginning is, was slightly contradictory because I was basically indicating that the top 50 arts organisations in this country which receive funding from the Arts Council should be preserved in ASPIC to a certain extent and uh, I think it's very important to guard against uh, institutions which get funding then remaining forever and a day funded organisations that can, uh, you know, will take up whatever arts funding is available with absolutely no change and that if you came back in 20 years' time and looked at who the Arts Council was funding, the, the list was exactly the same as it is today. I think that would be a tragedy. Uh, and one of the questions, I mean, I've just done this kind of fellowship with the Arts Council, and one of the questions I asked them was, you know, do you have a programme where you, if you're funding an organisation, you're kind of trying to get them off your books in a measured way? You know, you say, we're going to fund you for three or four years and get you out there so that we can then free up that funding to fund somebody else, which is sort of what they tried to do with the debacle of the 2007 cuts, which was handled very badly, but you could see what they were trying to do. Uh, I mean, I thought the quest my question was slightly kind of oddly received, uh, as if to say, you know, you shouldn't be funding these organisations. All I was saying is that I think there does need to be a turnover and a churn in terms of who the Arts Council funds, but um, you know, everybody else was much more eloquent about how the digital world is changing the arts, so I won't comment on that. I think we've got time for just a couple more questions. I must get you out of here by telling up. Uh, Mark Bell, Commissioning Editor for Arts at the BBC. I just wanted to chip in on the Google question, actually, just before we move along, um, which is that I think that the way the world, that virtual world works, is absolutely crucial that you have size. I mean, the reason why everybody goes on Google is it's, it's the first place you go. And I think one of the things that the BBC can do, one of the things it has in the virtual world is size. And I think that's one of the reasons why people go to it. They use the news, they use, they use it. And I think it's... I think it's important to remember that, you know, that's what drives use on, in, the, on, in, in the virtual world. I also, um, I think, therefore, we can, uh, the BBC can offer um, ourselves not only as a provider of content, but also as a platform for other people to use that size to get in to um, audiences that they wouldn't otherwise touch. And I think it's, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we're partnering with the Arts Council, partnering with the Public Catalogue Foundation and other things, because I think it means that we can with our scale, with the size of our platform, we can actually get those partner organisations to reach people they might not otherwise meet. Did you want to have a question as well? Um, and I wanted to say that. I also wanted to just um, reflect quickly on what Ed said earlier about the, I'm not, you know, here's not the place to talk about the size of the BBC really, or indeed the talent salaries or all of that stuff. I do think you have to remember that, you know, public service, um, you know, plurality is what's crucial in, in, in in arts broadcasting and we need to foster public service broadcasting across the, across the sector you know we provide something like 90 percent but i wish i wish there were more people providing more does anyone else want to have another last question mil vukovic from design council uh, actually my question is not about design but it's about dance and uh, and you know it's kind of strange but dance is similar to design and it's very linked to another 
agenda, and that is well-being and health agenda. And I think uh, what I found uh, slightly disappointing maybe in, uh, in, in your approach so far, and that is that arts is still perceived in isolation, and, uh, and really we are thinking about cuts and how we could be smarter, but how actually we could use our uh, excellent uh, creative sector, dance and uh, design including, as engine of this economic recovery. So those links, how they could be strengths. Okay, well, let's start that each of our panelists make up a, a, a word on each of that, those questions as we come to our grand climax. Okay, do you want to start and we'll just come along sure. the panel? Um, I do agree with both, both points made by both questioners there, that the, the cultural ecology does more than just provide uh, economic value. Um, and trying to understand what it what it does do um, means that we can't just arrive at simple answers. It's easy, and I'm not disagreeing, but it's easy to say, well, we need to be smarter and so on, and I don't disagree with that at all. Um, I think what I resist is a notion that, um, that the end product and the end result needs to be simple. In fact, I think one of the significant and important things about the culture we have is that it's sophisticated, it's nuanced, it asks questions about who we are. And for me, that's at the, that's at the heart of what culture and the arts in, in Britain needs to do, and, and I think that's what I want to hold Dad, on to. a couple of words from you on either of those questions or both? I'd just go back to the R&D question. I think it's absolutely crucial. Um, the, the explosion we've had over the last decade has really been eating up the investment that we had in the art school tradition. Um, all the kind of brilliance that's been around in architecture, design, fashion, everything was a, comes from a moment when the world of the art school was the art world, the world of culture. They're not anymore. And what's going to feed us in the next 10 years? Don't know yet. Tessa. Um, <laughs> I feel that unqualified to comment on a specific question about dance, although it seems to me that the point of this conversation is all about how all flowers flourish and the right things are protected to continue to grow. Um, I get incredibly tired at the thought of being smarter because I think, um, I mean, I don't disagree that we shouldn't be, but I also think um, when I think back to 10 or 15 years ago or even before that when people running theatres were asked to go and raise a whole load of money and become hugely involved in managing and suddenly the ability to direct plays was taken away from those people. It used to concern me hugely that the greatest single talent was being asked to look in all sorts of other ways about how to survive rather than do. So um, I absolutely understand it. We all have to be realistic and we all have to work together to be realistic. But honestly, we also have to protect people to do what they do best. And if that means sharing management and support, then let's do it. But, but to ask people to be 17 things rather than the one thing they're great at is a problem, I think. Okay, well, I mean, the, the arts and creativity prides itself on lateral thinking and ways of solving problems. So it is, it's, uh, it's raison d'etre, really, to be smart as a matter of instinct and discipline. I would like to make sure that... If we, that, that making cuts actually is happening now. I would like to take the confidence that we currently have and actually, and I've just made this point to the Arts Council as well, and say, therefore, go forth and cut based on this isn't good enough, this doesn't work, this is old-fashioned. Make the cuts before anybody asks you to make them on economic grounds. The arts has got to be fierce about what it values and what it wants to fall away. And only when it starts doing that will it stop looking defensive. It can't have 
everything blooming all the time, regardless of whether it's actually withering. So I'd like to get the arts out there being smarter, not to do with cuts. And I think that would benefit the smaller arts organisations as well, because so many of them would survive that test. But isn't that true also of how we deal with, for example, the BBC, that we say to them, yeah. be safe, we want you safe, now let's be as good as we possibly can yeah. ourselves. Yeah. So on, on self-mutilation there, clearly recommended by Jude, <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's right and proper that with the theme of would arts and culture, what would arts and culture look like in a conservative world that Ed should have the last, and I'm sure wise word. Well, I thought, Jude, uh, you put it absolutely perfectly. And I think, uh, you know, to a certain extent, cuts are happening now. Our national museums have been cut by half a percent and every year uh, with the spending round you know we know that the government sends around scenarios saying cut by five ten fifteen percent so uh, I think that's an important point to get on the record and you're quite right the art should be fierce and tough and robust and not defensive but in, uh, and that's kind of the point I was trying to make earlier which is you know engage in this debate and don't say uh, we're immune and so I think that's absolutely right and uh, you know Tessa I hear what you say about you're tired of having to work smarter but to a certain extent um, you know it, to be very controversial at the last minute I think Tory, the Tory party's tired of having to uh, come in although I'm not saying we won the next election uh, after a Labour government has wrecked the economy and public sector workers are on strike and we've got a ballooning deficit uh, and an out of control welfare budget but you know we'd love to inherit you know, what we gave the Labour Party in 1997, which was the fantastic national lottery which we just set up, and an incredible economy which they've, um, uh, you know, taken all the plaudits for the last 12 years before they finally brought it to its knees. So that's what we're tired of. You're a bit too neutral. The, the other thing is that uh, I really, you know, I didn't come here to upset Mills. So uh, what I would say is look at my speech yesterday where I made the point about how the arts are relevant to a whole range of different activities uh, and that, again, you know, pick up what Echo is saying, uh, you, know, if we are, you know, it's incumbent on, if we're in power, for DCMS to work smarter, and that means making the case to uh, the education department, to the health department, to the communities department about how important the arts are and asking them to come in and help. And I also spent some time talking about how we need more dance training for PE teachers. Uh, I think only 60 out of 1,000 get any dance training, uh, so that's very important as well. Well, thank you all. Thank you very much. As, as 10 o'clock chimes throughout the world, we can see that we've, uh, we, we've timed ourselves brilliantly. And I think we have actually had a fantastic conversation. So I really want to thank my panel and thank all of you for your contributions. You know, we've covered a whole range of stuff, art and elitism, cultural R&D, the role of small companies, uh, the crucial role of local authorities often overlooked, uh, the new cultural organic, the role of the web, new institutions, the global poetry system, and indeed for the need for the arts to prune itself as it can cut itself better than the crude mandarins of the Treasury. So thank you very much to my panel. Thank you all, and I think you should congratulate yourselves, and especially this wise and clever panel, so early in the morning. Let's give them a big hand. <laughs>